0: and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Wayne Nance, otherwise known as the Missoula Monster. Wayne was never formally caught, arrested, diagnosed, or had any kind of trial, but the story nonetheless is interesting and terrifying. So let's get into the story. Wayne Nance was born on October 18th, 1955 making him a Libra in Missoula County, Montana. Now, we've discussed what was going on in the United States in the 1950s in previous podcasts, but let's do a refresh. The United States was experiencing a boom from the economy to the amount of children being born. People were moving away from the cities and out to the suburbs where you could own a moderate house with a yard for less than the price of an apartment in the city. Women were being encouraged to leave the workforce and go back to being housewives, which many did, begrudgingly, and the rebirth of the feminist movement began again in the 1960s. More and more American citizens were speaking out about racial inequality and the end of segregation. It was met with resistance in the South with some southern congressmen vowing to do all that they could to defend segregation. Which is shameful. So, a new genre of music was developing from the increasingly popular black American blues that was labeled, quote, rock and roll. The first rock and roll artists were, of course, Elvis Presley, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Jerry Lee Lewis, Little Richard, just to name a few. The music was catchy, and the themes were generally disliking authority and young love. TVs were beginning to be affordable enough to be in most people's homes, which began hurting the motion picture industry. Though slight, there was an increasing level of competition. So to get people to keep coming to the theaters, the writers and producers began casting young attractive, popular people such as Elvis Presley. They also began making more horror and sci-fi movies as well. Some of my favorites. Marilyn Monroe became hugely popular along with James Dean. Popular television shows included Leave it to Beaver, I Love Lucy, Father Knows Best, Dragnet, and Westerns also became quite popular. Now, with the Cold War beginning, many people lived in fear of a communist takeover, so a set of hearings called the House Un-American Activities Committee was formed and went after suspected communists, especially those in the entertainment industry. Many people were blacklisted. Also, many people believed that we were all living on borrowed time due to atomic bomb testing. World War II had shown that the Soviet Union and the United States could work together for a common and mutually beneficial goal, but that ended after the war. Then, the nuclear race was on, and both countries were in constant competition to build more and more deadly nuclear bombs. But children, for the most part, were blissfully unaware. The Barbie was around... The hula hoop was invented, and for the most part, life was very good for citizens of the United States during the 1950s. Wayne Nance's parents were George and Charlene Nance. George was a truck driver, and Charlene was a waitress. George was born in 1928. His mother had remarried a man when George was a toddler, and I don't know what happened to his biological father... But his stepfather, John, was the only father George ever knew. And when he turned 16, George joined the Navy. In 1952, when he was 24 years old, he met and married Charlene, who was a child bride or considered a child bride. She was 16 at the time. And the wedding was held in Charlene's parents' house. Now back then that was not uncommon. The couple lived in a trailer park in Missoula, Montana and George worked as a truck driver in the logging industry for many, many years. The couple had four children. Their eldest was Desiree. The next child was Wayne. Then another son, William. And then their baby daughter, Veta. George loved to go hunting, fishing and taking his family and friends camping. I mean, he loved to be outdoors. George and Charlene were described as hard-working people. Everyone that knew them went on and on about how hard they worked. Good, strong, true people. In the early 1960s, the family moved to another trailer park called Tamarack Court, which was outside of Missoula. This trailer park was not as nice as the one they had previously lived in. George and Charlene loved each other, but they fought more than most, mostly due to money issues. Charlene seemed especially tired and angry. Now, her husband was a truck driver and was gone more than he wasn't, and that left her working full-time and taking care of the kids full-time. So, of course, she would be short with the children, but more so with Wayne. Wayne was a redhead, freckled, adorable little boy, but he was also a troublemaker from the start. His mother would go to work and complain to her co-workers about how difficult he was, often threatening to send him to some reform school. But, as much trouble as he caused as a child, when he was in school, he maintained excellent grades. His teachers would later say that they could see that he was highly intelligent and, Though I'm sure they didn't realize it as it was happening, he did receive a bit more favor from his teachers compared to the other students. He learned to read quickly, and he loved to read, period. The other kids in the trailer park who Wayne enjoyed playing with later stated that they did have a sense of him being mean and would sometimes show how cruel he could be. One story from the owner of the trailer park is about how Wayne with a sort of zoned-out look on his face, walked to the trash incinerator that everyone used to burn their trash. The man watched as Wayne inspected the incinerator. He saw that a family of kittens were huddled on a shelf close to the open door of the incinerator. They were enjoying the warmth because it was winter and it gets cold in Montana. And within a second, Wayne had just tossed the kittens into the fire and he just stood there and watched them burn alive another story from a classmate of his from the book quote, to kill and kill again by john coston comes from a woman who remembers an experience with wayne on the school bus they were both about eight years old when she was just a girl julie said she was moving around in her seat on the bus and her glasses fell off of her face to the floor landing just under her seat she remembered that she was very nervous because she knew if they were broken her mother would be upset she said Wayne picked them up saw that they were just fine but then she said she literally watched his face change and he began teasing her acting like he was not going to give her her glasses back she demanded and demanded and finally he held them up in front of her and he snapped her frames in two then tossed the two sides back at her She said that she broke into tears, went home, and told her parents what happened. Julie's father decided to go talk to George Nance, but George responded by saying, Well, you know, boys will be boys. You see, this is what George always did. He would brush off the concerns of others when it came to Wayne's behavior. Another strange story to come from Wayne's childhood was that, as kids often do, when they started giggling and talking about sex Wayne seemed to know quite a lot about the subject educating the other children far beyond what was age appropriate as he got into middle school he was by all accounts average height and weight but he seemed so much stronger than most of the other boys he was also considered a tough guy once while riding his bike He flipped head first over the handlebars of his bike, landing very hard on his head, then skidding down the pavement on his freaking skull. Once his body lost the momentum, he stood up, got back on his bike, and rode off. The other kids that witnessed it were in complete shock. Wayne enjoyed provoking emotional responses from people. For show and tell, he usually would bring snakes to school, knowing that this made the teachers and most of the other students uneasy. But ultimately, Wayne had a horrible temper. Charlene would say that he was a, quote, belligerent troublemaker, and she was at a loss as to how to stop him because using the usual disciplinary methods did nothing to stop him. His father, George, would always find fault from outside sources, never really able to see the darkness that was brewing inside his own son. Once, when Wayne was kicked off the bus for fighting, George stalked right up to the bus driver and he demanded to know why Wayne had been told he couldn't ride the bus. And the driver politely told George that Wayne was constantly picking on the other kids and causing disturbances. He did apologize to George and told him that, unfortunately, he would have to find accommodations for Wayne to get to school. So, George was forced to drive Wayne to school, or at least while he was at home and not out on the road. Then, on December 14, 1968, when Wayne was 13, George walked into a store and held the attendant at gunpoint. He just wanted the money. The attendant gave George all the money that the store had. Then George led him to the back of the store, hit him in the head with the gun, and then ran through the store, heading for the entrance. Just then, the armored truck showed up to pick up the money from the store. George ran back into the store, and many police cars began to arrive. Ultimately, George was handcuffed and taken to jail. The story made the front page news. George was sentenced to five years in jail. Wayne's teachers knew about his family circumstances, but still thought he might be able to grow up and have a good future. He was very smart and had a knack for staying focused on his work. They also hoped that the sight of him that caused trouble and was a consummate loner would diminish as he aged and matured. They wanted to believe that deep down he was a good soul. George Nance was released after serving just under a year in jail. At that same time, Wayne randomly decided that he was going to beat up one particular boy for no reason every single day until the end of school. But, after two days of beatings, Wayne just decided to stop. In high school, Wayne took the harder classes on purpose and kept his grade point average well above 3.0. He enjoyed learning but he was also teaching himself about dark things such as black magic, devils, and demons. He was heavily into science fiction and wizards and loved to chat with anyone who would listen about his favorite subjects. He once told a group of people that he had had a dream where a spiritual queen entity with dark energy had visited him and told him that he would someday become a warlock in a high-ranking coven. Wayne even began telling everyone his birthday was actually on Halloween, though it was earlier in the month. During Wayne's senior year, he became obsessed with Vikings and the stories of the Scandinavian warriors who took ships and explored new lands. He told people that he worshipped Odin, who was the Viking god of battle, magic, inspiration, and the dead. At the same time, he also began studying Satanism, but this was not actually too terribly out of sorts for those times. Most people were reading the book The Exorcist and playing with Ouija boards and tarot cards. And when the Satanic Bible was newly published, well, Wayne went right out and bought a copy completely fascinated. So, in a nutshell, that is Wayne's childhood. So, as we do, let's take a look. Wayne was born into a family that didn't have a lot of money, but it certainly sounds like he didn't do without in any way. I see no history of abuse or neglect whatsoever. We get the idea that he was an ornery child from the beginning and his behavior worsened. Now it is unfortunate that his father didn't hold him accountable for his bad behavior like he should have, but that in itself wouldn't show causation for his future crimes. We do get the sense that his mother was very frustrated with him, but again, there seems to be zero evidence that she did anything other than what any normal parent would do when they have been pushed to the edge of sanity by their child. Now, we know that he had a pretty substantial head injury when he wrecked off of his bike, but again, he was displaying aggressive and violent behavior long before this accident. And yes, when the family became very short on money, his father attempted to rob a store for money and subsequently was arrested, and that would most definitely cause issues for the whole family. I would imagine Wayne, along with his mother and his siblings, experienced tremendous embarrassment. But again, his grades didn't drop. I have found nothing stating he acted out due to this event. He made the decision to beat that boy up for days after his father had already come back home. In my research, I read nothing stating the kids at school teased him about what had happened with his father. I mean, to the contrary, it appeared that the teachers tucked him neatly under their wings and tried to steer him in a positive direction. So, in my opinion... I see nothing that screams at me anything he could blame his crimes on with regards to his childhood. I see nothing that tells me he acted out based on a horrific childhood or life experiences. So, on the afternoon of April 11, 1974, Donna Pounds had been out with a friend of hers that sold Avon to drop off orders to people. It was the day before Good Friday. Donna's husband, Harvey, was a preacher and was still working downtown. Donna and Harvey were devoutly Christian and Donna sometimes worked part-time in the local Christian bookstore as well as volunteering at the St. Patrick's Hospital. Harvey was 44 years old and he suffered from a congenital heart condition, a condition that had already taken the lives of two of his brothers, but it did not stop him from DJing on a local Christian radio station. The couple had three children. The middle was a son named Kenny, who had just left home to return to Fort Bliss, Texas, where he was in the Army. Kenny and Wayne Nance had been friends, well, sort of friends, in school. Donna arrived back home, dropped off by her friend in front of her house. The house was unlocked due to the fact that the house was for sale and the realtors were coming in and out showing the house. It was a bit after 1.30 in the afternoon and the house was quiet. The rest of this story is based on evidence and police theories. So it is thought that Donna walked into her master bedroom where she saw an intruder wearing gloves. In one of his hands, he was holding a twenty-two caliber gun. He pointed it at her and forced her on the bed. The gun was actually her husband's gun that was hidden in a built-in cabinet in their room. Most likely she recognized the gun and the fact that the intruder knew exactly where it was means more than likely Donna also recognized her attacker. He shot a warning shot across the room and then tied her wrists and ankles to the bedposts using white clothesline wire. He then took off her pants, he cut her underwear off, and then he raped her viciously. After, he untied her and took her down to the basement where he demanded that she get on her hands and knees under the stairs. He then retied her binds, he taped her mouth shut. He then pointed the gun at the back of her head and shot her five times at point-blank range. She fell forward into the couch that was in the basement, and she was in a crouched position. The intruder then inserted the barrel of the gun between her legs, and he left it there. Later, Donna's husband, Harvey, arrived home and ultimately found his wife. He called the police. Now, it did come out that Harvey had been having an affair, and some, including his own son and Wayne's friend Kenny, believed Harvey had killed his wife. But there was enough suspicion around Wayne to obtain a warrant to search his room. So when they arrived, Charlene let the detectives in, knowing that her son was a suspect in the murder. She also knew that he had skipped school the day of the murder. And that he had been seen standing in the Pounds' backyard that afternoon. She watched as they found a black bag in his room containing twenty two caliber bullets and empty shell casings, which were the same brand as the one used in the gun that killed Donna. They also found a pair of men's underwear in a drawer that had very visible blood stains on them. You see, Donna had been on her cycle when she was raped. So, they took this evidence and they left. When the police asked Wayne to come in for a polygraph test, he consulted a lawyer. The lawyer at first was curious about the case. Wayne had showed up to his office alone, without his parents. I mean, he was just 18 years old. Wayne explained that he had been friends with Donna's son, Kenny, and that he had been to the house on several occasions. Wayne said that he thought he was being singled out because he was heavily into the occult. The lawyer did notice that Wayne had carved a pentagram into his arm. The lawyer told Wayne that he would look into the case and let him know if he would agree to represent him. But after the lawyer spoke with the police and he heard about the evidence, he decided he would not represent Wayne because he knew then that Wayne was not being eliminated as a suspect he was the prime suspect so he met with Wayne again and as Wayne began asking questions about the validity of lie detector tests and did some of the outcome vary depending on the operator and on and on Uh, not to mention that not once did he even say anything about Donna Pounds or how awful her murder was the lawyer could tell immediately that there was something very wrong with this kid who also obviously knew that he was the prime suspect and he didn't even seem to care. All Wayne was concerned with was how he was going to stay one step ahead and control the whole scenario. A deputy once told another officer that he had been out on patrol and saw Wayne Nance under a bridge. He had set up some sort of altar, had a small fire going, And it was obvious Wayne had sacrificed some cats, all while completely naked and pleasuring himself. Now, there was no mention of the deputy approaching Wayne or anything of that nature, which does confuse me. Because why? But anyway, at Donna's funeral, her children, including Wayne's friend Kenny, discussed the fact that Wayne had been in their house... And Kenny knew that he had actually shown Wayne where they hid the gun just to show off, as boys often do, but Kenny didn't think that Wayne was actually capable of murder. Soon enough, the lie detector test was conducted on Donna's husband, Harvey, and the results were inconclusive. Again, he had been having an affair on his wife and he had a known heart condition, but ultimately they were not able to determine if he were being deceptive or not. When they hooked Wayne up to the machine, he answered their questions and the results showed that he was not being deceptive. He had passed the polygraph. So, what alibi did he use? He told them that he had been out hunting for Indian artifacts for a class he was taking, though it was later discovered the class had ended the semester prior. But the authorities tried to rely on physical evidence, There had been a pubic hair recovered from the crime scene, but it had been misplaced. They were not able to lift fingerprints off of one of the gloves that they found, and the underwear had been washed, and since this was the 70s, they could not pull anything off to compare at least blood types. So, in the end, no one was arrested, and eventually the case went cold. Soon after... Once Wayne graduated from high school, he joined the Navy. For the first year, he was a model soldier. Then he was sent to an Idaho Falls, Idaho school for nuclear prototyping. But after only being there two days, he was kicked out and his naval record was stamped as, quote, demonstrated unreliability, unquote. He was then sent to another naval facility. After a couple of years, he was in trouble again, possession of marijuana on more than one occasion, possession of LSD, two illegal butterfly knives, and a pair of binoculars that he had actually stolen from the Navy. So he was, quote, generally discharged by reason of misconduct, unquote, on November 29, 1977. He moved back in with his parents in their trailer in Tamarack. Three years later, Wayne's parents, George and Charlene, had gotten into a verbal fight at the waitressing job she had, and the argument went outside. From there, Charlene got into her car and sped off. George got into his pickup truck, and he tried to keep pace, but her car was fast, and he lost sight of her. He turned, and he drove home to wait for her. But Charlene didn't go home. She kept driving, speeding faster and faster, and slammed her car head-on into a giant pine tree and killed herself. It was noted that she could have easily avoided the tree, and there were no signs that she had even hit her brakes. Charlene was only 44 years old. A month later, George's father died and left him a house on Minnesota Avenue in eastern Missoula, so he and the kids moved out of the trailer park. Wayne was now 25 years old, still living at home with his father, working as a bouncer at a local bar at night, and was also taking some college classes at the University of Montana. His college career was actually pretty fantastic. He took ever-increasingly difficult courses, and he was able to keep his grades up to A's and B's, but after his mother's death, he eventually dropped out. That same summer, it seemed pretty hot for Montana, and Denise Tate left her windows open for the air to circulate through her home. She left and was back that night, grateful for having the much cooler air inside her house. She went to her bedroom and discovered some rope had been tied to her bedposts, all four corners. Confused, she removed them, thinking that it was a prank, but told herself she would contact the police in the morning the policeman was less than happy that she had removed the ropes and began to have her show him where they were and how they were tied she described the situation and he immediately recognized that that was exactly how donna Pound's ropes had been on her bed he thought of wayne immediately but quickly dismissed the thought as he didn't even know where wayne was located these days One night after drinking, Wayne walked into the unlocked apartment of Bill and Dory Schmid in the middle of the night. Dory woke up to her husband barking at what she could only make out as a silhouette in her doorway. And her husband was demanding he leave. Wayne responded that he must have had the wrong apartment. And Bill ordered him out again. So Wayne appeared to leave. The couple settled back in. "'Only Dory heard movement in the living room and awoke Bill again. "'So he got out of bed. "'He marched into the living room where Wayne was half asleep on the couch. "'He grabbed him by his arm and shoved him out the door. "'Now, what was terrifying about this encounter "'was that Dory and her husband Bill had been having some marital problems "'due to his drinking, and Bill had not been there for three nights. "'For those nights, Dory had been alone.' Wayne knew that. So in 1982, Wayne got a job in a furniture store warehouse. He would sometimes make home deliveries for the store, and Wayne enjoyed that. The company was so well respected, and Wayne was such a polite and punctual worker. The customers would sometimes leave the keys to their houses so that the deliveries could be made when they weren't home. This gave Wayne access to homes and apartments. He would then draw very detailed maps of the floor plans of each resident. These were later found among his things. December 24, 1984. The body of 16-year-old Marcy Bachman was found by a hiker near Deer Creek in Montana. She was so badly decomposed, she couldn't be positively identified right away. She had been buried in a shallow grave after being shot three times in the head. Once her identity had been established, it was learned that Marcy had run away from home and had been, air quotes, taken in by Wayne Nance when he found her at a truck stop. Wayne stated that she had left the area near the time she had been killed. He was not suspected. Less than a year later... The body of a young woman was found near Crystal Creek. Now she too was so badly decomposed that she to this day has never been identified. She was murdered by two gunshots to the head. These are thought to be two of Wayne's victims. In late 1985, Teresa and Mike Shook had just built their dream home out in the country. When they were ready, they called the furniture store that Wayne worked at and ordered some furniture to be delivered. They wanted it there before Thanksgiving. Wayne drove the delivery truck and a co-worker rode along to help. They arrived at Teresa's home. She was home alone at that time and told the men where to put the furniture in her new house. She then signed the paperwork, thanked the men, and they left. On the evening of December 12, 1985, Teresa and Mike heard a knock on their door. Teresa was in the process of making sugar cookies. She had just put them in the oven. Not expecting any company, one of their small children was already at the front door and just mindlessly opened it. And a man seemed to slide inside, and he announced, quote, I'm Conan the Barbarian. I want money. Nobody will get hurt. All I want is money unquote. Mike saw that the intruder had a gun and a knife on him. At that moment, Teresa was shot in the leg just above her ankle. Teresa most likely knew who had come into her house. The man tied Mike's arms and legs up, bashed him in the head with some object, then proceeded to stab him in the chest. Mike fell over onto the floor, face down, slowly dying the pool of blood beneath him growing ever larger the man then pointed the gun at Teresa and forced her to go to her bedroom there were two children that had witnessed this the intruder put one into a bedroom and the toddler he placed in the crib next to Teresa and Mike's bed he proceeded to tie Teresa up to the four corners of her bed then while the toddler watched he pulled her pants down cut her underwear off raped her violently then stabbed her he then used his knife to attempt to dig the bullet out of her leg but he was unsuccessful he placed a pillow over Teresa's face he then left the house but only to return a bit later to ransack it he then attempted to set the house on fire with the children still inside he left the house but the fire never took A neighbor saw the man leave the house in a maroon 1984 Toyota Extra Cab 4x4 with a white camper top, a description that exactly matched Wayne Nance's truck. The next day, friends of Mike and Teresa's came to their house, and after getting no answer at the front door, they tried a side door that was unlocked, and they let themselves in. They immediately saw smoke. The children were found unconscious but still breathing, and they did survive. As time went on, Wayne began to be obsessed with the furniture store manager, Chris Wells. He had even made an album of cutout pictures of her where he had written on the back of some of the photos things like, Chris, I want you to live with me and my lazy boy, Wayne. Everyone he worked with was well aware of his obsession with Chris. Wayne constantly left little gifts and trinkets on her desk, which made her very uncomfortable. But she didn't feel like she could say anything because, I mean, he was known to have a temper, and he was also one of the best workers the store had. And Wayne would become visibly angry when her husband Doug would stop by and visit the store. Wayne once confessed to a female co-worker that he knew that there was something wrong with him. He stated that while he did not believe in God, he did believe in reincarnation. So the co-worker asked him to explain. He said that he felt like he had not been allowed to come back like other people had after each death, that perhaps he was being punished. For killing the last of an extinct animal and had been held back from having as many reincarnations as other people, but was finally allowed to come back when he himself was born. The female co-worker could see that Wayne was completely serious and became uncomfortable and immediately changed the subject. So, one evening... The store manager, Chris Wells, and her husband, Doug, decided to go out for a planned fun evening with friends, testing some guns that Doug owned in preparation for hunting season. They dined on barbecued chicken and called it a night around 11.30 p.m. and headed home. Upon arriving home, they noticed what looked like an orange and white vehicle parked half in and half out of their side yard on their street. Chris went inside and went on to bed, but Doug went out to investigate. He saw someone kind of slumped over in the truck and just assumed it was someone sleeping off a night of drinking and he went back inside. But something stopped him. It just didn't seem quite right, so he went back outside to get the license plate number. But this time he noticed the truck was empty and as he turned, he was hit in the head and knocked out. When Doug came to, he knew the back of his head was split open. He was lying on the kitchen floor, and his head was pounding. As he looked up, he saw Wayne Nance coming toward him to hit him again. Doug and Wayne wrestled, which alerted Chris, so she came out to see what the commotion was. Wayne finally pulled out a gun and ordered the couple to get back. Wayne then ordered Chris to tie Doug up. Then he tied Chris up, telling the couple that he had done something really bad, and that all he needed was money so he could skip town. He was pacing like a wild animal all around their house, back and forth, back and forth, very disjointed. But he then decided that he would take Chris upstairs and tie her to the bed. He then took Doug to the basement, and then he stabbed him in the chest. Doug audibly heard the air leave his body as his diaphragm was severed. Wayne, with zero emotion on his face, just calmly wiped Doug's blood off of his knife and began to go back upstairs. Doug was barely hanging on to life, but he somehow managed to free himself and he grabbed a shotgun that he had in the basement. He knew that he needed to get Wayne back downstairs, so he began hitting the wall to create a noise. And of course, this did bring Wayne back downstairs. Doug shot him in the torso. Wayne screamed, Oh God, I'm a dead man. They wrestled, but Doug beat him repeatedly with the shotgun until finally Wayne was dead. The initial shotgun blast would have been fatal. So, as you know, Wayne was never formally charged with any murder, and he was killed in the act of trying to kill two more people. With what we know of his childhood and so on, I cannot help but think that he was just born to kill. Both of his parents seemed like reasonable people who didn't outright abuse or neglect him. I mean, as I said before, he did suffer a notable head injury, but he was already displaying juvenile deviancy prior to that. So what's your take on him? What do you think was going on? You can leave me comments on my Instagram page, at Serial Underscore Killing, or on my YouTube page under the same name of this podcast. You can also visit my website at serialkilling.squarespace.com, where I put my daily posts on Instagram, On the website as well, or you can leave me comments on Patreon. Thank you so so much for listening. I do appreciate every one of you, and have a great day. Music by Kevin MacLeod on incompetech.com.